Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Dr. King declared that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yet justice is not synonymous with the law. There are systemic and structural issues that allow for lobbyists and funders to influence legislation to the benefit of powerful interests, while there is insufficient participation by affected communities. How can we make policy without understanding the lived experience of people affected? And how can we have democracy without giving voice and power to affected communities? Even when we have just laws on paper, however, it's difficult to vindicate one's rights. Litigation requires resources, can take many years, and can be a disempowering process with lawyers directing the show. We need to empower local communities. We need to take the law out of the courtroom and into the community. Empowering communities protects our planet. They are at the front lines of environmental protection and climate change mitigation by resisting extractive industries and deforestation. Unfortunately, these environmental defenders are being threatened, harassed, and even killed for protecting their lands and our planet. Global Witness has shown that this is only increasing in its annual reports. But communities are fighting back. One organization dedicated to empowering communities and bending the curve towards justice is Namati. Namati deploys community paralegals in partnership with attorneys to empower communities to know the law, use the law and shape the law to protect, enforce and create rights in their interest. It has been able to vindicate land rights, including by aiding in the drafting and passing of the seminal Customary Land Rights Act in 2022 in Sierra Leone, which provides for prior informed consent from communities, including mandating female representation therein for any development on their lands and bans any development in protected areas. Namati also hosts the Grassroots Justice Network, where organizations around the world can find solidarity, valuable information exchange, and advocate together for justice everywhere. I recently spoke with Vivek Maru, the founder and executive director of Namati on environmental and climate justice. The work of Namati and the themes of his recent article, A Pathway to Climate and Environmental Justice, in the American Journal of Law and Equality. Alexandra, what's happening? Welcome to Gravity, Vivek. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Alexandra. Great to be here. And I love your podcast. I was listening to the Michael Mann episode, and he's awesome, um, the creator of the hockey stick. And you were a great and very generous interviewer. Thank you so much, Vivek. So can you tell me, how did you get the idea and how did you start Namati nearly 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago now? Yeah, 11. Yeah, it goes actually back a little further than that, which is I had almost dropped out of law school. I went to Yale Law School, almost dropped out because the law seemed so disconnected from communities that I was close to, both in the United States and in India, where my family is from, and movements that I admired. It seemed abstract. It seemed elite. It seemed like it was written in in language that people couldn't understand on purpose. And a couple of friends convinced me to hang in there. So I did, I, I finished. I did a couple of sort of typical law grad things. After that, I clerked for a judge on the Ninth Circuit uh, of Appeal. Marsha Burzon was out near where you are in San Francisco. I worked for Human Rights Watch for a year, but I was still kind of not really clear on where I was, what I was doing or where I was headed. And I ended up moving to Sierra Leone in 2003 
This was at the end of an 11-year civil war there that had really torn the place apart. And I went there at the invitation of a few grassroots human rights groups from the country who wanted to do something to support people when they face injustice in their daily lives. And they really thought of that as a never again campaign because it was so clear that the root causes of that war, the reason why people had picked up arms and done unspeakable things was because of injustice. It was because of arbitrariness in government, corruption, exploitation. That was what had driven the country into conflict. And so they thought of this as part of how we don't go back to where we came from, how we build a society that is peaceful and resilient. But it was an open question what that would look like because a lawyer-based model would not have worked. There were there were 100 lawyers total in the country at that time in 2003 in, in, in Sierra Leone. And out of the 100, more than 90 lived in Freetown in the capital. So the whole rest of the country, even a rich person would struggle to find counsel. And so a lawyer-based model wouldn't have worked. And what we ended up doing instead was experimenting with what we sometimes call community paralegals, which listeners may not have heard of them. They are basically organizers rooted in the places where they live who have knowledge of law and the workings of government. And they serve as kind of a bridge. They help people to understand those rules and use them in tandem with their own people power to get practical solutions. And so I, I started with working with paralegals back then in 2003 in Sierra Leone, and I have been obsessed ever since. They showed, they sort of saved my relationship to law. They showed me how it was possible for ordinary people to use law in the pursuit of, of transformative change. And Namati, I mean, there's sort of twists and turns in the story. I ended up at the World Bank for a few years. I left the World Bank with the conviction that there was potential to grow a stronger global movement around grassroots justice, around combining law and organizing, around putting the power of law, taking it out of books and courtrooms where it's sometimes sleeping and put it in, putting it in the hands of ordinary people. Yeah, that's, that's very inspiring. It actually reminds me of when you talk about how you were disappointed with the law and nearly left it and didn't see how normal people could empower themselves. Because law can be a quite disempowering experience, right? I'm telling you. You usually have society's elite become lawyers and then just the procedure. People don't understand that when you students have civil procedure and then they think, oh, that doesn't matter. That's just procedural stuff. And then you realize when you practice, actually procedure is substantive <laughs> and this mm -hmm. is how we keep people out of court or you need all these mm -hmm. resources to fight companies and so forth. Mm -hmm. But this has been the history of law. One of my favorite books is Bleak House by Charles Dickens. And he was clerk for a long time. And so I think one passage in it, he talks about the law's business is just making business for itself. Mm -hmm. So I think it's wonderful to tie what the law should be, advocacy, and this grassroots organization with, when you can, to articulate that into complaints, but through a process where you're constantly also looking outside of the courtroom. Like in um, in Sierra Leone, it seems that you utilize multiple strategies. So firstly, um, could we discuss the uh, rainforest, the Gola National Park, and next to it, the, uh, the community of 22,000 residents that woke up one day to seeing that their land was um, illegally leased by uh, a palm oil plantation and how 
Namati help this community uh, invalidate the lease? Absolutely. It was a European oil oil palm company that managed to secure a lease agreement for 75,000 acres of rainforest for 50 years for $2 an acre per year. And they did that, as you said, without the consent of the 22,000 people who live and depend on that land. The, the agreement was thumbprinted because the people who endorsed it could not read. They sat across from some white folks from this European oil palm company, six hours away from the land in question behind closed doors. It was an interim paramount chief who had been appointed by the government who wasn't even from this place. It's called Makbele. It wasn't even from Makbele. And he put his thumbprint on this lease agreement. And when people found out about that, there's one woman in particular who ended up leading a fight to undo this attempted land grab. Her name is Mrs. Binta Jalo. And Mrs. Jalo, she also can't read, actually. She's grandmother, widowed in her 60s from a traditional Muslim family. Her, her family never sent her to school, so she doesn't know how to read. But she, Mrs. Jalo knows how to fight. And she, she had been a refugee back during Sierra Leone's civil war. She had fled to Guinea with her family. And when she heard about this lease agreement, she kept thinking to herself, man, I cannot be a refugee again. I am not going to lose my home. And so she got organized. She's formed a residence association and started talking about this and raising alarm. Do you guys know what the heck is happening here? And then she and the residence association, they reached out to a pair of community paralegals, which I mentioned earlier, Tommy Abdullah and Bendu Koroma, who, who work in a district nearby. And Tommy and Bendu, they showed up. The first thing they did was help get a hold of the lease agreement, which nobody had ever seen. None of these people had ever seen it. They translated it into language they could understand. And together, they 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 reviewed the lease agreement in relation to key elements of Sierra Leonean land law, which Tommy and Bendu were able to demystify and explain in simple terms. And it was clear from that analysis that they were fundamental violations. You're not supposed to get a lease agreement like that. It was also going to encroach, this 75,000 acre area was going to encroach upon the, the Gola Rainforest Park, which was protected by statute. And so that was also a violation. And so then armed, you know, it's like the communities knew that this thing was wrong from day one. They knew it was wrong, but now they knew it was also illegal. And armed with that information, they they used their people power. They confronted the paramount chief. They confronted the company directly. They demonstrated en masse. They invoked the law with specificity. Because Tommy and Bendu, the community paralegals, they are connected to a pair of lawyers in Freetown. So the community was also able to invoke the possibility of litigation, even though in this case, nothing ever went to court, but they were able to kind of wield that threat. And at first, you know, the company dismissed these folks. They, and then at one point, they tried to give them money. They offered Mr. Jallo and some other community leaders money, which they refused. It took oh, a year and a half. And eventually, the company backed down and they acknowledged that this lease that they had was not valid. And that was a huge victory. I mean, land grabs like these happen all the time in many parts of the world. But reversing them is rare. And Mrs. Jallo, when, when, when this happened, she said, To us, she was like, we learned that no one can take our land. No one can bend our hands. We learned our rights. And that is the difference that law and organizing can make in the face of 
huge imbalances of power and, and grave threats to both people and to the natural environment that we all depend on. Yeah, it's very inspiring. And one thing that I noticed as well was that uh, Namati didn't just say, okay, let's invalidate this lease, let's give back your rights. They worked with two different community groups or two sectors in within that community. One sector wanted to completely invalidate the lease and work with the national park and become rangers and protect the rainforest. The other part of the community also wanted to protect the rainforest, but they were interested in renegotiating a smaller lease with environmental protections and some profit sharing. So I like that it's the community that directed the paralegals and the lawyers, not the other way around. So can you speak more about empowering the community and taking direction from the community? You're absolutely right. That That is exactly what happened. Mrs. Jallo and her crew didn't want the palm oil company at all. And, they, and we helped them to to reject the oil pump company altogether. But as you said, another section of the community actually said, well, we don't wanna be grabbed from or stolen from, but if it's on terms we agree to, we would be open to hosting an oil pump company. And exactly as you said, we don't have, the paralegals don't show up with their own preferred or predetermined outcomes. I think that is maybe distinguishes a grassroots justice effort from some traditional environmental efforts, which have sometimes been exploitative of local communities. It's like the environmental organization has a goal and the communities are sort of like a, a tool to be used to advance that goal. That's, that's not how we work. We, we support, as you said, communities to pursue the vision for their future that they can envision and to support them to use law and organizing to, to do that. And it, what the agreement that came out from that other section of the community, if you compare that with the original one, it's like night and day. The original agreement was 75,000 acres. The, the, the revised one was less than one-tenth of the size. That is what communities actually, when given the chance to choose, were willing to dedicate to this, to this proposed project. The, the original one said nothing about environmental protections. The new one had a number of specific environmental protections, and it incorporated commitments from something called the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, which is a voluntary industry group that actually this company had belonged to. So it, it sort of made those commitments legally binding to the community. It also, I think you mentioned this, had a profit sharing agreement, which the old one did not have. And then perhaps most important, it was signed in the open by community members themselves, rather than being thumbprinted behind closed doors six hours away. And I, I would say that, that that story is emblematic of what I have seen around the world, which is that communities are not homogenous and it, we shouldn't romanticize them or portray them as somehow idyllic or, or um, all the same. But on the other hand, when you support communities who are facing grave environmental harm to exercise their rights and to pursue their own visions for the future, you end up with better outcomes, better outcomes for these people that are more equitable and more fair and better outcomes for all of us, less destruction, less heedless deforestation and and many less pollution and many, many other things. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to pollute your backyard. So when you're in control of it, you take it. Exactly. Care of it. Yeah, um, exactly. They, they, they have an incentive to take care of the place they live in because it's theirs. Absolutely. Right. 
And uh, another thing that I wanted to touch on um, with respect to uh, the land rights in Sierra Leone. So Namati worked with the government and with people, and I'd like to um, discuss more the community involvement in um, drafting a law, the Customary Land Rights Act, that I believe was enacted in August of 2022. It's one of the most progressive uh, land rights in the world to empower communities to protect the environment. So can you speak more to uh, Namati's work there and also um, how the uh, CLRA came about and the community <coughs> involvement in it? Definitely. Yeah, this was a breakthrough. Like you said, it was it was last August that it got passed or September, maybe finally when the president signed it, passed the parliament in August. And it was a long time in the making. Over Since Namati got started back in 2012, paralegals have worked with communities like Mrs. Jallo's on 300 different cases of environmental and land injustice. And, you know, sometimes we had big victories, like, like the case that we were talking about just now. But many of those cases, we didn't, we weren't able to succeed. And it's because the system itself was so broken and unfair and stacked so that it protects the rights of companies rather than the rights of communities. And so we kept asking ourselves, can we change the system? Can, can we change the rules that are fueling these injustices? And over those 10 years, we started bringing together communities from across their own specific cases to reflect on what patterns are we seeing? You know, like how is the system playing out in practice? And that is information that oftentimes no one else has. The government knows what rules are on the books, but who knows what actually happens when you try to put those rules into practice? It's communities who are doing that work. And we saw some patterns. We saw a pattern of chiefs signing away huge lands without the consent of their people, um, you know, through corruption, et cetera, which is what happened in Mrs. Jallo's case. We saw big industrial projects like iron mining, rutile mining, <clears throat> gold mining getting approved without communities ever seeing the environmental license conditions, which are kind of a piece of paper that the company commits to with government, but the communities living next door who are, whose, whose lives are on the line, they, they often would never even have access to those documents. Uh, a number of other patterns where we, we said, you know, we can see how this system's broken and we can start to envision what a better system would look like. And that came together in this Customary Land Rights Act, which was drafted by Sonkita Conte and Eleanor Thompson, who are the two lawyers who lead the Namati team in Sierra Leone. And as you said, it's 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 one of the most progressive lands on land, environment, climate in the world. Just a few of the things that it does. It, it, it grants every community across the country the right to free prior informed consent over what happens on their territory, which is a longtime demand of the environmental justice movement. It grows out of the indigenous peoples movement, but it is very rarely honored in law. <clears throat> and this law says everybody has the right to FPIC, free or prior informed consent. It also requires that those environmental license conditions be put into binding agreements between companies and communities. So not only do you have access to them, you have the legal right to enforce those conditions. It's not just a matter between the company 
and the government. <clears throat> the, the law also empowers local land use committees and mandates that those committees be at least one third women, which is crucial because Sierra Leone has a long history of patriarchy. They, they say in Sierra Leone in Creole, land business, not man business. That's like an old expression, meaning that land affairs are for men to handle. And so part of what this law does is turn that around. It says we're going to have women at the table when decisions about land are made. It, the, the law also bans um, uh, industrial activity in old growth forests and ecologically sensitive zones. So there's a lot of positive. It's in the law. But as you said, you we, we would not have this law today without the, those 10 years of grassroots struggles. It was communities who conceived of every provision based on their lived experience of what wasn't working. And then it was communities who fought to get it passed. There was a lot of opposition, as you can imagine, the the, the private sector, the, the head of the largest company operating the country said, I think what he said was, I, in, this is on record in the newspaper, and I quoted in the, the article, um, a new article in American Journal of Law and, in, uh, Law and Equality called A Pathway to Climate and Environmental Justice. The CEO of this, this, this largest company said, I'm not coming back to the country if this law passes and it's going to make investments in land impossible. And so the private sector was opposed. There was opposition at times from the paramount chiefs across the country whose power over land would be diminished under this law and, and power would be restored to communities themselves. And it was only by communities coming together, dialoguing directly with their parliamentarians, showing up in mass at the consultations that happened across the country, showing up in parliament. It was the force of communities whose lives were at stake that got a law like this across the finish line. It took years. And when it happened, it was a breakthrough victory. That obviously is not the end of the story. Now we got this awesome piece of paper and we are working like heck to turn it into reality. It's a very inspiring law. And uh, hopefully we can use that same model tailored to the particular context of each country, which would be different, but to empower communities uh, around the world. And speaking of uh, communities being able to achieve something that uh, you might not be able to achieve through traditional means, I was really inspired uh, with Namati's work in uh, Kenya and how uh, in 2016 the Kenyan government enacted the the Community Land Act. And uh, they the Community Land Act was a process for pastoral communities to obtain land rights. And it seems nothing was happening. Even Namati couldn't um, get the uh, land secretary uh, on the phone. And then you have 11 tribes just march and demand to see the secretary, and they do. So if you could just uh, explain a little more about that situation and what happened there. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, this, this, this important law in Kenya passes in 2016, which for the first time creates a pathway for communities to secure legal rights over lands that they have stewarded and, and, and depended on for generations. And that that the land that is eligible as community land under that law, it makes up 67 percent of the landmass of the country. So this is like a huge portion of Kenya. These are the places where the animals that you read about in children's books, this is where they live, the zebras and the lions and the giraffes. 
they 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 have cohabited, coexisted with these indigenous communities, Maasai, Samburu, and other indigenous communities for generations. And yet those communities have never had the legal rights to govern these lands that they have taken care of. And when you have that disconnect, when, when you're living in a place that but you don't actually have legal rights to it, it's a recipe for exploitation. I mean, we we saw that in the Mrs. Jallo case, the, the case from Sierra Leone that we were talking about. Same thing here where governments, private corporations, also conservation efforts um, that that have an exploitative bent are able to grab these lands from people and disenfranchise them easily when they don't have legal rights. As you said, law passes in 2016, and this, this happens a lot, and then it just doesn't get implemented. And the, the meanwhile, the communities working with paralegals, they got to work. They, they, they followed the steps under the law, which is documenting their boundaries, electing land management committees, adopting bylaws and documenting their bylaws for how they're going to govern their lands. They did all their work. But the government didn't do its part. It didn't appoint, for example, the county land registrars who are called for under this act, who would be the ones to grant these applications and, and, and pass over land rights to communities. So after years of this, 2019, as you said, 11 different communities from across the country who had all done their work, they showed up in Nairobi. And exactly as you said, Namati and other organizations, we could not get the land secretary on their phone on, uh, for a meeting. Uh, wouldn't reply to our phone calls. But when communities themselves showed up and they showed up with these applications that they had spent years preparing and they invoked law with specificity, they were able to see that secretary in one day. And I think that that is like an example of the power, again, of law and organizing, that when people themselves invoke law and they invoke it in a way that's in tandem with their own people power, they are often able to get things to move. And that 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 day resulted in the government committing to appoint those county land registrars. And even though the pandemic uh, started soon after, the government actually followed through on that commitment. And now there are count, county land registrars and the first communities have begun to receive rights to their lands. There are still barriers, major barriers to effective implementation of that law, but that was an important break- breakthrough along the way. And I thought what was uh, most uh, inspiring, perhaps, was that uh, the secretary first offered to simply process their applications and they said, no, whoa, 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 what about all the other groups? No, you need to start enforcing this law. So they didn't just take for themselves. They actually represented all the pastoral communities. And I thought that was just very inspiring and brilliant. I agree. I, I I think moments like that have given me sustenance and inspiration over the years is to see people who are facing dire circumstances. It would be totally rational and understandable for them to basically be looking out for themselves like, yeah, that would be fine. Just give us land rights and we'll move on. People like that, instead seeing the bigger we and saying, no, this isn't just about us. There are communities across the country who are in the same circumstance. And we're not going to leave here without progress towards recognizing the land rights of everyone. That, I agree, it's like an example of moral leadership and courage 
And it's the kind of thing that happens when people come together in movement. And I think that that movement spirit is part of what is most essential in this moment where we are facing an existential climate crisis that ties together all of us. We are facing grave threats to democracy and rule of law at its most elemental level. It's going to take a movement spirit to overcome those challenges. And I I agree. I, I take huge inspiration from a moment like that when you see that movement spirit at work. Yes, it's so inspiring. And it's also, when you think about it, such a powerful tool as well, because if those communities had just... Um, say, agreed to uh, the process of their own applications, the law would still be weaker, right? Because it's not actually fully enforced. And then they're still in a weaker position. But if you start enforcing that law, if all the communities get their rights, it's it's easier to enforce. And you have more allies, right? You have every single community now um, that uh, wants to protect their rights. So uh, altruism also works in tandem, actually, with um, strategy. Yes, um, absolutely. Great way to and they it, saw right? that. <laughs> yeah, and they saw that in that moment. They saw that bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to now turn to uh, Namati's work in uh, Burma, uh, Myanmar, um, because uh what happened there and what is happening there still is uh, horrific. It's also very much tied to what you were saying um, with respect to our climate crisis. So um, unfortunately, uh, renewable energy is a bit of a misnomer, right? Like it's not, it's not actually infinitely renewable. It um, really requires critical minerals that uh, the mo- most of these minerals are in the uh, global south and we are continuing these extractive uh, and exploitative practices there. So Burma's mountains um, are, you know, ripped apart um, for these critical minerals for our uh, wind turbines and for our batteries and so forth. So uh, I'd like to talk about the Ariel Mountains in Shan State. And this was some years ago before the uh, more recent coup in 2021. Um, you worked with um, Ma Ken Ken and uh, a local shopkeeper in the area, Dornang Nu, um, to, uh, to, in the end, I believe uh, every single mining company had to leave because you invalidated all their leases or showed you showed that um, the leases were, uh, in, were invalid under the law there. Um, if you could just explicate more on um, how you were able to stop the pollution of uh, the land. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, Shan State, which is northeastern Myanmar. And this is this happened before the brutal military coup, which you alluded to, which took place in 2021, around the same time that there was an attempted coup in the United States. There was a successful coup by the military where they overthrew, overturned an election and seized power. And things have changed drastically since then. This this case took place before that happened. And, and as you said, there were about eight manganese mines operating unlawfully in these mountains. And communities worked with paralegals, one of whom was from this place and affected himself, to 
figure out what the rules said. And there were kind of new environmental laws on the books at that point that really had rarely been used or enforced. And they used those rules to first convince government to come and do an inspection. And then eventually they found out through some research that none of those mines had valid permits. And so that information as well, they used to get those unlawful mines to be shut down. And that meant that streams that had been running black ended up running clear again, and they were able to reclaim farmland that had been destroyed. The forest has recovered. Um, so yeah, it's an example of how in, in even an extremely unequal context, because even pre-coup Myanmar was still heavily military dominated. And the this is an ethnic area within Myanmar where these are ethnic minority communities who have been marginalized and disenfranchised throughout Myanmar's history. And yet, you know, law and organizing when used in tandem can 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 make some progress. And Namati is still continuing to work in um in Burma right now, right? Um but in a different way. And how can you operate right now in Burma? Yeah, the, the conditions are brutal. The military After the coup happened, there were mass protests across the country and the military brutally crushed those protests with live munitions. They they killed many people. And right now there's kind of active civil conflict where there are many different groups who are trying to fight back uh, in an armed way. And the military also passed a registration law that... um, makes it very difficult for civil society organizations to function at all. Namadi per se is not um, operating directly in Myanmar, but we continue to have relationships with a network of community paralegals who are persevering to this day, about 40 of them across eight different states and regions. And I have taken huge inspiration from watching them choose to persevere. They they have decided that they want to keep going and that the cause that they started out for needs them. This is in their own words and they're not going to give up. They're, they're, they, they, what they have done instead is sort of adapt and change the ways that they work more behind the scenes. They've changed the kinds of cases they worked on. For example, land grabs by the military was a prominent focus before the coup. And there was an administrative process that had been set up under the democratically elected government to restore lands that had been grabbed by the military. And paralegals were helping many people to try to get solutions out of that administrative process. That today is a non-starter. It's like taking on Goliath right where he's strongest in his face. Um, And instead, the paralegals have worked with communities to find other spaces where there's a bit of room for organizing, for securing community power. An example is there's something called community forestry certificates, which are still being issued even after the coup. In part, One of the differences is that the forest department is a little bit more technocratic and less under the military's direct control. And it's an imperfect instrument, like it doesn't actually grant 
ownership rights, which is what communities really claim. And it's time bound. There's there's some bureaucracy around it, but it is a little lever that can help you to be more secure than you otherwise are. And what we have found is that it is partial defense against attempts at destruction or land grabbing. And so that's an example of a kind of case that paralegals are working on more of now than they were before. But yeah, they are doing this at risk to themselves and they are playing a long game. What you know, their, their vision is that in order to build an inclusive and democratic and just Myanmar, this is part of how we get there. This process of organizing and building community power and finding small levers and hooks with which to expand the protection of rights in the here and now, this is part of that, that longer fundamental struggle, but it's not gonna happen overnight. And the issues that we're talking about with respect to environmental injustice, um, it's not just located in the global south. We have massive injustice issues domestically. Um, Historically, the U.S. has dumped uh, toxic sites next to poor communities and mostly poor communities of colour. Um, And not only do we have the issue that there's one toxic site, there are multiple when we're looking at any new development, we really have to look at cumulative impacts and we really need to have the voice of the people there. In your article, you speak about an open coal pile in South Baltimore. And I thought I thought I was pretty educated about this. And even I was shocked to look at a photo of kids playing near piles of coal right next to them in South Baltimore. And I realized, wow, I am... Naive, I thought the toxicity was there, but unseen, right? I thought it was all the danger, the PFAS and lead and stuff that you don't actually see. But no, no, it's right there. It's just like a bunch of coal that you can see. And I am losing my words. I'm getting very emotional about this because it's uh, not anything that I could comprehend that could happen in the United States. But yes, it is happening. And um The importance of having community involvement in the environmental process and the environmental impact assessment and the importance of cumulative impact. So California has some process for cumulative impact, Um, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and I believe Minnesota recently passed um, a Frontline Communities Act as well. Could you speak more um, about uh, the importance of both cumulative impact assessment with respect to new development and the importance of community involvement in local development? Absolutely, Alexandra. And first of all, I share 100% your sense of Outrage. It is ridiculous that in the United States in 2023, that community in South Baltimore is living and playing and praying and learning literally in the shadow of three story open coal piles. We know what coal does to human health, we know what coal is doing to the planet, and yet. It's not invisible at all, as you said, it's 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 right out there in the open. And that is just one example. There are examples like that across this country. And I think you're, you're right to remind listeners that this pattern of environmental injustice, it's actually something that 
rich countries and poor countries share. Oftentimes, the climate politics kind of break down where the poorer countries, global south countries are saying to the richer ones, you caused this problem and it's on you to help us solve it, which which I think is largely true and which is why something like losses and damages um, is, is so crucial. This is a story that, that these countries have in common. This is in some ways a way of building and a movement for environmental and climate justice that straddles North and South because these patterns of concentrating environmental harms in communities that face discrimination, communities that have less wealth and less power, we see those in Baltimore, in Myanmar, in Sierra Leone, and and, and all over the world. And so it's so crucial that we build a, a, a bottom up united global movement for addressing these injustices in a way that accelerates the change, the fundamental structural changes we need to, to, to navigate the climate crisis. And yet, to your point, I, I think one of the ways we do that is by recognizing the nature of cumulative impacts. And basically what that means is that our current regulatory system, it basically works facility by facility. If you want to build something, you apply for a permit and you usually get your permit. Permits are very rarely denied. And then the permit has some conditions. What our system doesn't do a good job at is accounting for what happens when there are a whole bunch of facilities right in one neighborhood. And and in that South Baltimore neighborhood that we were talking about, it's not just the open coal piles. There is a fossil fuel processing plant. There is a chemical facility. There's a whole bunch of facilities all lumped together in one place. And that is commonly what we do is that we dump on poor and minority communities. Um, And so cumulative impacts legislation, and you mentioned some of the states that have passed this, they start to change that dynamic and say that we're not going to overburden places that have, we're not going to continue to overburden places that have already, that are already bearing disproportionate amount of the harms. Um, And they require an assessment to say, well, would this new permit make things even worse in this place? And if it would, then you should deny the permit. That's, for example, what this groundbreaking law from New Jersey said in 2020. The extra piece that I'm arguing for in the article is instead of the state making that decision that, well, we we think the science shows that it's going to increase the burden. And so we, the state, will deny the permit. How about giving the communities the right to decide? And that goes back to that principle that I mentioned in the context of the Sierra Leone uh, law, which is free prior informed consent. How about giving the communities in South Baltimore and Louisiana and other places that are historically overburdened the right to free prior informed consent over what happens on their territory? Give them access to objective scientific information about the impacts of what of, of a proposed facility and then give them the, the ability to decide. That is a step that um, is still, I think, necessary and has not yet been taken. I agree. And I think it's an even larger point that whenever we make policy, we can't just have people in the room. And firstly, we should have people in the room that have doctoral degrees and master's degrees in the particular area. We should, but we can't just have those people. We need to have the people affected because even if you're trying to make 
the best law ever to protect people. If you don't know people's lived experience and the local situation, you will have unintended consequences because you don't know what you don't know, right? And also we need a bottom-up approach, not a top-down approach, because that is democratic, right? I mean, we're meant to live in a democracy and people need to be empowered and look after their communities. And the other thing is, if you don't involve the community, not only do you... uh, disempower that community and effectively disenfranchise it, but you don't get the community buy-in. And so you're likely not going to get a good enforcement of the law or achieve what you want to achieve because you don't involve the community. They might not agree with the law. They might not know about it. You might not get the results you want. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a good way to govern. I like the way you put that, Alexandra. Yeah, I mean, science and technical expertise is absolutely essential you know and and there are people in on the on the right wing in the united states for example right now that have done damage to the credibility of 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 science and yet it is so crucial i mean we without the work of climate scientists we wouldn't actually understand what is happening right now so the, the that expertise is absolutely essential and as you as you just said it it's necessary but not sufficient we need to deploy that expertise alongside the leadership of the people who are directly affected. And I don't think that we are going to get meaningful progress without having that latter part of the story, that bottom-up part of the story. And I, I agree with you that it, what we're talking about is deepening our democracy, about about building a democracy in which ordinary people don't just vote every few years. They are involved daily in understanding, using, and shaping the rules that govern our economy, that that regulate what pollution we we produce or don't produce. No use shape, that's what we like to say, is everybody should be able to know law, use law, and shape law. I agree. That is that is a fantastic mission, and it's it's like a wheel, right? Um, that uh, gets us to a better place. But I wanted to focus on the importance of um, protecting indigenous communities and local communities uh, with respect to protecting uh, local biomes, because uh, environmental defenders are being attacked all over the world. Um, These environmental defenders are usually protecting their lands or they're the custodial people of these lands. Uh, They're mostly Indigenous peoples. Um, And these are the people that are not only protecting their traditional lands, but they're protecting us because they're protecting our biomes all over the world and they're getting killed for that. Yet we are having this um, this chasm in this environmental movement. Unfortunately, the only thing the climate cares about, it doesn't care about anything except reduction in global cumulative emissions. But what about other planetary limits? You know, (laughs) what what Mm. about our forests and our water? And we also need to survive. Mm. Um, Isn't that the whole point, surviving the climate crisis and surviving it Mm. together? So how do we have a just energy transition? So we're not just Mm. transitioning away from fossil fuels, but we're transitioning in a way where we're not um, perpetuating our historic mistakes in the extractive, exploitive industries and just swapping fossil fuels for critical minerals? Yeah, I I think it's a really important question and not necessarily an, an easy one. There, there are genuine 
complexities and tensions for us to grapple with together. On the on the first point about environmental defenders, maybe that's an easy one because it is a travesty, an absolute travesty that in the 21st century, you can get killed for protecting your community and the planet and Global Witness, which does an amazing job tracking killings of environmental defenders on their data, which is based on public news reports. It's the worst it's been since they started tracking 11, 12 years ago. And so one of the core demands of the environmental justice movement is that we protect environmental defenders. I mean, we, for example, our legal system, we have protections for whistleblowers. If you're inside the company and you blow the whistle on something, you, 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 are, you have access to legal protections. Or if you cooperate with a federal prosecution, you know, let's say you're involved in the mob, but you prop cooperate, you're like a, you agree to be a witness. Again, you have access to legal protections. How about the people living next door to companies that are causing harm? They too should be able to access basic legal protections. I, I think that's that's a fundamental principle that we need to build in to the, the way we think about environmental governance. On the on the point about the rights of communities with respect to the clean energy transition. I, I agree with you. We we cannot we cannot replic replicate the extractive and exploitative economy that got us here in the first place. That is not a just transition. We do need to move fast in transitioning our energy system, and so. I, I do think that that is important to keep in mind. And I increasingly hear that from communities themselves is they, they recognize that it's not somebody else's climate crisis, that, that in order for, if, if we don't move fast, if we don't have a rapid transition in our energy system and in other systems that are currently fueling climate change, then communities who have historically borne the brunt of harms, they're the ones who are going to lose the most. And so that urgency is important to keep front and center. What I have found is that increasingly communities are eager to actually say yes to, to, to much of the work that is required for the climate transition. A lot of the environmental justice movement historically has been about saying no, no to a land grab of 75,000 acres, no to unlawful, heedless, destructive mining in Shan State in Myanmar. But a lot of people are eager to say yes if it's on terms that they agree to, if it's done in a way that respects their own um, uh, needs and rights. And they're, they, they, it's like they, it's not that they they, they, they don't want to have to choose between having a job and being poisoned. They want jobs that don't poison them. And so I actually think there's an opportunity for many communities around the world to be in a place where they are accelerating and affirmatively building the things we need, the alternative energy infrastructure, the public transportation, the systems for regenerative farming, for stewarding forests and, and ecologically sensitive areas. There's affirmative work that needs to be done and communities who have faced harm, they're in a good position to actually lead that affirmative work. So I, I see a lot of opportunity in that regard. On the other hand, there are some places like if you if you live on top of lithium, lithium is so crucial for the climate transition. 
there are different ways to do lithium mining. So for example, brine based is one of the most damaging. <clears throat> so we should be choosing the least damaging, but even the least damaging are going to be harmful to your local place. And so I think in those instances, it's so crucial that we proceed in a way that follows the principle of free prior informed consent that honors the rights of the communities who live in those places. Because again, we cannot... We should be fast, but we should be fast and just. This is one of the things that uh, Mary Robinson, who I really admire, former president of Ireland, says. We need a climate transition that is just and swift. Yes, and you can't say that we have a clean energy transition if it's laced with blood. Mm -hmm. So it's an oxymoron in a way. Yeah, I agree with you. Can't have a, I like the way you put that. You can't have a clean energy transition laced with blood. The one one other thing I would wanted to just note, which I think is important um, to put this in the context, because actually it's sort of in the interest of the fossil fuel industry to portray the clean energy economy as somehow to almost like conflate it with the fossil fuel economy. It's in the interest of the fossil fuel industry for people to somehow conflate the the harms caused by clean energy with the harms caused by fossil fuels. And that's just not even close to being true. It's an order, it's orders of magnitude difference. I I cite some a study in the in the article um, that demonstrates that installing just one gigawatt of wind capacity to replace coal on a grid like that in Texas reduces total mining by 25 million tons over 20 years. And they say that even if the world increased 12-fold the annual global production of all rare earths, lithium, cobalt, and even copper, the metals produced would comprise just 3% of 2020 world coal production. So I think it's just really important to keep those proportions in mind. That like we, we, the, the clean energy economy does have harms and we need to deal with those in a fair way. And as you said, it's not going to be a clean energy transition if it's laced with blood. But it's nothing, not even close. There's It's orders of magnitude cleaner and less harmful than the fossil fuel economy that we need to get rid of. And so I just think it's important for us to keep that 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 difference in mind and not to allow um, the fossil fuel industry or anyone else to somehow skew those facts. That being said, if you li- if you happen to live in a place where there's lithium or cobalt, it's of no comfort that there are many other people uh, who might be who might be spared just be, you, you know, because that's where you live. And so at the same time, we need to grapple with and, and, and deal in a, in a fair way with um, the harms that are that do emerge. Sm- they are smaller, but they are significant and smaller in, in overall scope, but they are significant and we need to we need to deal with them justly. Yes, I vehemently agree with you that um, we certainly need to divest um, from fossil fuels. We need a rapid and urgent energy transition to reduce global cumulative emissions, uh, which is a big collective action problem uh, internationally. But um, the the problem is that, for instance, the um, Inflation Reduction Act um, incentivizes uh, domestic mining of lithium because lithium is so important to lithium ion batteries and other things. Um, in our transition, unfortunately, uh, indigenous communities are within 35 miles of the slated uh, new mines. <laughs> so uh, the new mine sites, sorry. So um, it's just 
We need to do it in a way that firstly, the mining has good labor practices, the best methods available, uh, the cleanest to prevent leaching into the local water and other things. And the communities have the right to say no. I mean, indigenous communities in the United States have historically been and, and are continuing to be discriminated against. They, mm-hmm. If they don't want it, mm-hmm. you know, I think this is, this is where um, it becomes a complicated issue. We want to transition, but the communities need to be able to uh, say no. They need to have prior informed consent, mm-hmm. um, even if it is uh, energy transition. And perhaps they will say yes. As you said, you mm-hmm. you, you know, you um, had experience with many communities. They want to say yes, but they want to say yes on their own terms. On terms that they agree to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another question I have, and we didn't, this is kind of going back a bit, but um, you, uh, Namati, sorry, uh, convenes the Grassroots Justice Network, and you have over 3,500 organizations um, across 175 countries that provide support, solidarity, and information exchange, which is very important, um, so that our communities can learn from each other uh, even though they're facing different discrimination, different um, disempowerment across the world, they can still um, utilize diff- the tactics from other organizations. And um, when we talk about this network, I also want to um, ask uh, about the concept of community paralegals and how they started in South Africa during the apartheid regime and how that information still continues to be relevant today to communities across the world. Yeah, thank you for that. We we convene, it's called the Grassroots Justice Network, as you said, and it's a community of people advancing social and environmental justice by combining the power of law with the power of people. There are members from over 175 countries. I think it's the largest community of justice defenders in the world. And, and we would really, I would really invite listeners to, to check it out. And if you feel compelled to join that community, it's by no means just for lawyers or people who work as community paralegals, it's for everyone, because these questions are for all of us to to take on. These challenges, these injustices are, are things that we all need to come together to, to, to overcome. And the law is not a tool for a few or for experts, it's for all of us. And so that, that is the spirit of that community and I, I, I would invite listeners to to come in and be a part of, of of building a movement for grassroots justice that cuts across borders, that, as you said, one in which we can be learning from each other, be stronger in our own places out of solidarity from what we are doing uh, around the world, and then also come together on key on key questions and key demands that we have in common to fight together for common things. And yeah, I appreciate that you pointed out the history in South Africa. I did not invent, and Namati did not invent community paralegals by any means. They go way back. They, they go back at least to the 1950s in South Africa, which was under apartheid. And community paralegals emerged as part of the anti-apartheid struggle. And they would, these paralegals were often housed in ANC offices, African National Congress offices, which was sort of the Freedom Party. And they would help people to navigate and defend themselves against these many rules of apartheid about where you could be, what pass you had to have, where you could work, who you could marry, 
what you could say, there were so many, it was such a codified regime and the paralegals helped people to navigate those rules, defend themselves when they got in trouble. And they were an important part of that movement infrastructure that took decades to overcome apartheid. And, and since, since the transition in 94, as you know, South Africa is a very imperfect place. It's one of the most unequal countries in the world. Paralegals continue to work there across the country, helping people to make good on the promise of South Africa's egalitarian constitution and many progressive pieces of legislation in the country. Paralegals help people to understand those rules, get solutions, get implementation. And so they continue to have a vital role and I have found it helpful, you know, like, for example, our colleagues in Myanmar, they have found it helpful to be in dialogue with their counterparts in South Africa who have lived through similarly brutal times, who have played the long game and have made it through major changes. And that has been cathartic for, for community paralegals in Myanmar to be to, to be in touch with 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 counterparts who have made it through similar struggles. And so I, I, I have found that there's huge power in solidarity and in building community across our borders. I'd like to look at the pillars of community paralegal work and community lawyering because uh, paralegals sometimes pair up with lawyers. Now we've discussed, you know, the trials and tribulations of uh, traditional uh, litigation and uh, the fact that you need a lot of resources. It's extremely slow um, and uh you can involve some public policy, obviously, but it has to be tailored to the law and the law itself might need to change and it might need legislation and not just um, be able to be changed uh, through case law. Now, um, some traditional litigation uh, has been fantastic. And even uh, recently this year, the Center for Constitutional Rights with some other organizations filed um, a violation of the 13th Amendment. Um, and the uh, violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment for uh, Cancer Alley in Louisiana. The local communities there have been vociferously saying, we understand we have higher cancer rates and asthma and all these problems from um, the concentration of toxic industries in historically uh, black and poor communities. Um, that is, uh, for the United States, I think one of our greatest uh, environmental injustices in the nation. So we can do it through traditional means. What are the pillars of involving the community and how does law and advocacy work better when we're not just going through traditional avenues, but we're being directed by the community and not directing mm -hmm. the community when we're involving the community and when we're supporting the community, both in the courtroom and outside. You're pulling on my heartstrings now, Alexandra. I mean, this is this is at the heart of what we are trying to do. Litigation is a crucial tool, no doubt. I love that CCR case. And just across the world, the courts are on a, such a crucial bulwark in many places against the against the uh, violations of rule of law that we are seeing by authoritarian governments. And so litigation is a crucial tool. I'm a lawyer myself. Some of my best friends are lawyers, but too often we have allowed the law to be dominated by elites to have this highly technical quality where ordinary people can't even understand what's happening. And as you said, it can just be outright disempowering. Also, there's a tradition of within the public interest law and environmental law um, 
traditions, unfortunately, there there is has been many instances and in a, in a pattern of certainly distance from the communities who are who are actually whose whose lives are at stake, and sometimes outright exploitative. You know, there are times when environmental lawyers have really instrumentalized communities, and so the approach that we are pursuing is different. It's about blending legal knowledge and legal power with people power, with with organizing. And so instead of lawyers being in the driver's seat, ordinary people are in the driver's seat. Instead of relying on highly technical channels, we do try to engage those and demystify them all along the way, like pack the courtroom, have a have a meeting after every single hearing where we break down what was said, we talk strategy. Um, so, so use those technical challenges, but in a way that demystifies them and democratizes them, and then don't use them entirely or solely use them in tandem with other channels, including direct action, including people advocating for themselves in the language that they know. We, we talked about several examples over the course of this call of what that looks like and invoking law in the process. So kind of blending knowledge of law with the process of organizing. And then, you know, instead of being distant or uh, exploitative of effective communities, really having a focus on building collective power among communities facing harm, win or lose, like it's that power building that is so crucial. I also want to discuss intra-community conflict. So we really need to empower communities, but there are also conflicts within communities and there's also um, discrimination and inequity within communities. So there's intra-community conflict and intra-community inequities. And also sometimes communities do the job of cleaning up and then there's elite capture and they can't even live in, you know, they clean, they're toxic, a city and then suddenly, or part of their city, and then suddenly they can't afford the rents and have to mm-hmm. leave. And so mm-hmm. it's a double injustice, right? Firstly, mm. it's the injustice of dumping um, toxic sites on uh, poor communities. And then secondly, it's the injustice of them having to work to fight to get rid of it. And then the injustice of effectively evicting themselves from it because now um, they're too poor to live in the cleaned up community. So when we empower communities and get uh, places cleaned up, how do we prevent um, intra-community discrimination? How do we prevent um, elite capture? Yeah, it's crucial that we address both, both the rights of communities vis-a-vis corporations and governments, but also the bias and the discrimination that exists within communities I often think back to in India at the time of the writing of the constitution, there was a debate between Mahatma Gandhi, who, you know, freedom fighter and in some ways the the visionary leader of the Indian independence movement and Ambedkar, who was a Dalit leader and actually the, the lead author of the constitution. And Gandhi said, you know, Indian free Indian democracy needs to be built from the village level and we need empowered local communities who are able to govern themselves that that should be the heart of 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 the new India that we're trying to build and Ambedkar responded harshly he said are you kidding me it's the villages where the caste hierarchies are most rigid and hardest to overcome and so he was really interested in a strong federal national government that 
that that that checked those abuses that happen at a local level. And I think that's important to keep in mind for someone like me when when so much of my work is about community empowerment. And I think we don't have to choose between community empowerment and internal community equity. We we can advance both. We must advance both. And I've actually seen pathways and opportunities to do both at the same time. They can actually reinforce one another. I, I think one example was that law that I mentioned in Sierra Leone, which requires that one third of the land use committees be be women. And it's it's that larger struggle against corporate abuse and, and abuse by governments that has motivated what are oftentimes pretty old school and patriarchal dudes to be part of a movement that is lifting up gender equity because they want the whole, you know, they, they, they realize that that's part of how they can get this whole package. And so um, I have seen, yeah, movements for justice for communities really work in tandem with, complementary with, justice within communities, the pursuit of justice within communities. Wonderful. <laughs> that is um, that is what we want. We want both. And so the fact that it can be achieved, like you said in the example in Sierra Leone, that is fantastic. And that's what we have to aim for. I mean, it shouldn't be a dichotomy. We can figure out how to do both. So is there a final message that you want to tell our audience? It's been great talking to you. I think it would be fair for some of your listeners to ask themselves, what does this have to do with the climate crisis? You know, like the injustice has been around forever and efforts to, to combat injustice are no doubt important in their own right. But what bearing do they have on in this urgent moment when we need to be making this rapid transition, stop burning fossil fuels, reduce carbon in the atmosphere? Like, what is the connection between those two things? And I, it, it, you know, it's come up, the connection has come up over the course of the conversation, but I might, I, I might just close by summarizing why, in my view, grassroots justice, empowerment of communities, are not a nice to have, they are a must have for finding our way through this climate crisis. And I would offer four, four reasons. <clears throat> One is that the, the, the large scale shifts that we need, they're just coming too slowly. We are not seeing the transition away from fossil fuels as fast as we should. We are not seeing the investment in alternatives as fast as we should. And in the meantime, it's communities, communities facing harm who are on the front line of the struggle against catastrophe. Tribal communities in India who are standing up to the destruction of their forests and the mining of new coal, communities in Louisiana who are resisting new fossil fuel infrastructure, that community we talked about in Sierra Leone is resisting deforestation over and over. If we can empower communities at the front lines of the harms that are causing the climate crisis, that is part of how, that, that is the front lines of this struggle. So that's one reason. A second reason is that we desperately need large scale reforms like the Inflation Reduction Act they should not be designed by experts alone, as we talked about. They, they should grow from the lived experience of those most affected. And thirdly, when you do get them passed, they don't implement themselves. I mean, I, I think that has been a key lesson over 20 years of working in this, in this world is that laws don't implement themselves. In order for them to actually turn into reality, it takes empowered communities to breathe life into them. 
And lastly, climate change is happening. I think this past summer may have been the hottest in temperatures that the Earth has seen in 100,000 years. Climate change is happening right now, and community power is crucial for how we build the resilience that we need to survive and adapt to climate change. It's crucial for all of those reasons. And so that is why this focus on on justice for communities facing harm, on the empowerment of communities who are disproportionately at risk, I see it as absolutely an essential part of how we overcome this existential crisis. Essential, integral, imperative. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much for your time today, Vivek, um, and your pertinent insight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra, for having me and for doing this podcast, which is a really crucial set of conversations in this moment. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.